Don't you love it here at 1122? Some people meet Jesus in church, some people at a gun store. Isn't that great? I love it. It's very 1122. Hey, <clears throat> hope you're doing well. Grab your Bibles if you've got them. Turn them on or turn the page, however you work, and go to 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2. Uh, one quick announcement as you're going to 1 John. Next Sunday is Mother's Day. You're welcome. Okay, gentlemen, listen. Call your mama for sure, and then get your wife something too. And some of you newly married cats are like, if you haven't shamed my mama, just get her a present. Even if she doesn't have kids, it doesn't matter. Get her something. If you're like, that doesn't make sense. There's going to be a lot about your marriage that doesn't make sense. Get on board. Can I get a witness from the old guys? Amen? Amen. That's right. All right. So we'll see you next week for that. Um, first John chapter 2, we're going to study verses 7 through 14. And, and we're in week 4 of this series called Give Love a Try. And the one word that would sum up the book of First John, and he tells us in chapter 5, we'll get there in a month or so or two months. Um, the, the, the one thing that sums up First John is this. It's assurance. That John is writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you may know that you're saved. So that you can have assurance in your salvation. And your assurance does not come from how good you are. It does not come from your good works. Your assurance does not come by whether you walk in the light, or whether you keep the commandments, or whether you, um, love, your, you love your enemies, or love your brothers. It doesn't. Your assurance is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That you and I are saved by grace, through faith, and not by works. The work that we are saved by is not our own work, it's we're saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And so, fundamentally, what John wants us to understand here is that our assurance is in the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus at the cross, and that is foundational. But what he does not want us to do, he does not want lost people to be assured that they're going to heaven because of the things that they've done in their life. And so after he establishes this, this assurance of salvation, that our salvation is found in the fact or the reality that Jesus is our propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sin. And again, I told you for the past few weeks, you know, a lot of churches, like, we don't use big words like this. But if you can memorize the names of the coffees at Starbucks, then you can understand words like propitiation. So it means a payment that satisfies. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for our sin and not only did he pay to forgive us of our sins, but it's, it, because he's the propitiation for our sins, it satisfies the wrath of God. So not only does he forgive us of our sins, but also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Which means, so now the Father is no longer dissatisfied in you. That he's not dissatisfied in you. That he looks at you if you're in Christ because of what he did. And he sees the perfectness, the righteousness of Christ imputed onto you. And he's like a good dad that smiles over his kids. And that your salvation, it's assured that you are, you are assured of your salvation in Christ. It's not like God's going to save you today, but then he's going to see what you do at TPC. And he's like, never mind, give it back. I didn't see that coming. No, that he pays for all of your sin. And, and then when he establishes the foundation of the assurance of your salvation in him, then he begins to ask some of these questions. And what these questions are, are they're like a diagnosis to reveal if you're actually a Christian or not. And so remember early on he said that, that, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if you're in Christ, then you don't walk in darkness. And if you do walk in darkness, then newsflash, you might not be in Christ. And then last week he said, hey, if you say that Jesus is your Lord, then you will do what he commands. And if you don't do what he commands, then he might not be your commander or he might not be your Lord. And again, you can't get those things reversed. You can't say, if I do what he commands, then he is my Lord. It's the other way around. It's if he is my Lord, if I've surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ then the Lord gets to tell me what to do, and I'm obedient to that. And anytime we hear this, anytime we hear commandment, our minds go in all kinds of different directions, right? 
A lot of us go to the Ten Commandments about obeying the Ten Commandments. Um, But really, most of us, when you think about what it means to follow the commandments of Jesus, it has more to do with how you grew up and where you grew up and what kind of church you grew up or did not grow up in. Like, I grew up Southern Baptist, even though I rarely went to church. You know, I'm a recovering Baptist, so all you other recovering Baptists, welcome. Isn't it free? All right, so anyway. uh, And one of the things we were taught is you don't drink. You can't drink. Why? Because Jesus didn't drink. I'm like, but wait a minute. I think he turned water into wine. My grandma was like, no, it was grape juice, all right? And I'm like, I don't think it was, you know? And so, but if you were Southern Baptist and you got a little sniffles, well, you could drink NyQuil until you woke up neck in the back of an El Camino. You know what I mean? So it's kind of weird. And you're like, what? What's all the rules? And then, and then you would talk to other people, and they grew up Catholic, and they were like, How, what do you mean you can't drink? We drink at church. Like, the guy gives it to us, like the loaded stuff at church. And you're like, really? And so when we think of commandments, we think of, Oftentimes, we just think of these kind of cultural norms depending on how we grew up. Or when I grew up, like, it was, it was a sin to dance. That's what I was taught. It was a sin to dance. Right? They said, look, it's right there in the Word. Dance sin. See, it's right there in the Word. And then, and then the problem with that is you read your Bible and you're like, look, I think David danced. And they told me, well, no, it was, it was like a river dance. It was just feet. It was no, he didn't move anything else, okay? But I don't know if that's right or not. Well, what's going to happen, what we just finished off on last week is if you don't follow his commandments, then he might not be your commander. But we think of, like, don't do bad stuff and do more good stuff. And then John is going to throw us this, this curveball here, okay? Because here's the commandment that he's talking about primarily. We're going to start First 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Beloved, that's us, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And this commandment that he is referring to is a commandment that Jesus gave in John chapter 13 in verse 34 and following. So one of the things I've always told you, always let the Bible be commentary unto itself. So this, this old commandment that he's speaking of is, is what Jesus talked about in John 13, 34. And Jesus says this, a new commandment I give unto you. Now listen to this. If you were a disciple back in the day, and you've been following Jesus around for a couple of years, and he's been doing miracles and raising dead people and walking on water and all this sort of stuff. And then he gets to this point where he says, a new commandment I give to you. I'm telling you, everybody's leaning in. They've got out their notebook and their pen, and they are ready to write this thing down. I mean, what is it going to be? Is it going to be like another Sabbath? He's going to make Monday the Sabbath also, and you get two days off? Or is it going to be like um, a special way to worship? You know, here's my new command. You've got to worship with your hands up, or hey, at least here, or maybe the Pledge of Allegiance worship like some of you do, or whatever it is. Is it that kind of worship posture? Or maybe, maybe it's a commandment about what we should wear, like grow out your sideburns. You've got to wear a little hat, or maybe a big hat, or something like that. Or maybe it's a commandment about something that you've got to do. They're all on the edge of their seat. I mean, if Jesus, the Almighty Son of God, says, I'm about to give you a new commandment, here they are, they're way waiting for it, and here's the commandment, that you love one another. To which I think Peter's like, that's not a new commandment. My mom's been telling me and my brother to do this my whole life. Jesus, how is this a new commandment? And he goes on, he goes, that you love one another, and here's the new part, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Think about that for a second. How does Jesus love us? Well, first and foremost, he goes first, that Jesus loves us first. Does God wait until you're lovable in order to love you? No. And thank God. You know why? Because most of you aren't very lovable. You're not. Does he wait until you get perfect before he loves you? Does he wait until you get, you get your act together before he loves you? No. No. Even when we are wretched, black-hearted, sinners, open rebellion against the Almighty God, what does God do? He loves us. 
And I've seen your Facebook, okay? You're not very lovable. I've seen it, all right? It's just selfie, selfie, selfie. It needs to be a lot less selfie, a lot more Jesus in your world, all right? And still, in that, Jesus loves you. He loves you first. You know what else? <clears throat> Jesus' love for you is consistent. He never stops loving you. Think about how inconsistent your love is to everybody else. But his love is so consistent. Think about how many times you have broken a promise to you and to God. You've prayed a prayer that would kind of like this. God, if you'll just get me out of this this time, I promise next time I will. You fill in the blank. All right? And you're like me. You've prayed that three or four times. And what does God do? Does he give up on you? No. He loves you. That The love by which Jesus loves us, he takes responsibility for things that are not his fault. Right? Like your sin and my sin. He shows up on this earth, and sin was not his problem. He was perfect, and he took responsibility for things that were not his fault. That's the way that he loved us. He, and he loves us not in a way that's fair. Praise God that God is not fair. You don't want God to be fair. God unfairly loves you over and over and over, and there is no limit to the love of God. He poured himself out for you. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Everybody write this down. This is a big deal. That you love one another. And everybody's thinking, well, we kind of do that. And Jesus is like, no, nah, you don't really. Here's how you do it. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Verse 35. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By your bumper stickers on your car. No. Because if you really love me, you put a big fish and another fish and then four little fish for your little center kids that you have, right? Is that it? No. That they will love you by your ridiculous Christian t-shirts that say a bread coming fish instead of Abercrombie and fish. They're going to see that and go, he's alive. No. They'll love you because of your cool worship music. Uh Uh-uh. By your incredibly inspirational pastor. Mm Mm-mm. That's not on here. Here's how the whole world's going to know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the new commandment. That's the new commandment that Jesus gives. So that's the one that John's talking about here in 1 John. So John says, I'm writing you no new commandment because Jesus covered it in in the first book that he wrote. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Now, can we just be honest real quick about the Bible here? Has John not been a little confusing in his book? Have you felt the tension that John talks about week after week here? Can I just tell you how hard it is for me to preach what John is saying? Because John seems to say things that contradict themselves over and over and over. He's like, there's light and there's darkness, and you better pick one or the other. I kind of feel like I'm in both sometimes. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. I go, dang. And then he says this, is that if Jesus is your Lord, then you'll do what he commands. Okay, well, sometimes I don't do that. All right, well, you better do it or he's not your Lord. Okay, I'm going to do it perfectly. All right, if you say you do it perfectly every time, you're a liar and you're out. Like, dang it. Or in here, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Okay, well, no, it's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment, but it's sort of new and it's sort of old. Like, I'm confused. Now, here's why I believe the Bible, one of the big reasons, is because... I think John is intentionally creating these kind of tensions. You know why? Doesn't that feel a lot more like your Christian life? Because my Christian life has not been as black and white as some people make it sound. It's not like it was before Jesus and everything was a train wreck and I was a drug dealer killing people in the drug cartel down in Mexico. And then one day somebody stabbed me in the head with a knife and I saw a reflection of Jesus in in the butcher knife and I surrendered my life to the Lordship of Christ. And now pixie dust from heaven falls on me wherever I go. I don't even have to set an alarm anymore because every morning at just the right time when I'm supposed to wake up, cherubim fly into my bedroom and shake me by the toe and be like, wake up, saint. And I wake up and Jesus is sitting on the foot of my bed, opening up to his word 
words, saying, what would you like to study today, Pastor Joe? And I go, well, let's go first, John, because I need a little help for the weekend message. And then right when me and Jesus are finishing up our quiet time, the Holy Spirit brings in my coffee. That has not been my experience. Has it been yours? But sometimes that's the way I hear it portrayed. And so I think what John is saying here is it's a mess and it's a struggle, but be assured. Your struggles do not define you, but what Christ did on the cross does. And so it's not a new commandment, but it kind of is. And, and here's, here's why he can say that, that it's sort of a new commandment. He goes, at, this, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you. Love one another. Here's why. Which is true in him. That's in Jesus. And in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light has, is already shining. Here, here's why it's a new commandment. Because Jesus Christ has fulfilled totally this commandment. That God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, that same Jesus that has fulfilled this commandment to love one another now dwells in you. And so this commandment is fulfilled. It is true in him and in you. And this is good news. This is good news. And what this means is that you don't obey this commandment by your own willpower. Thank God. Have you ever tried to love the unlovable by your own willpower? You have. It's called Thanksgiving, okay? Every year, every year, there's somebody in your family and you can't stand them. And honestly, if you were to come up here and share why you don't like them, we would be like, yeah, you're probably right. And you try, you get in your car, you pack up your kids, you're heading to wherever you're going. All right, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your in-laws, it don't matter. There's somebody there that really tests your patience all the way. And you're trying, and you're trying to say the right things, and you try to do the right things, and you try to have some selective deafness because they say stuff that gets on your nerves, and you try to do all that. And by the second day, you're like, the turkey's not worth it, we're going home, right? So... What John is saying is, it's not an outside-in move. It's not just be nicer. Because I'm going to tell you, I'm not a very nice person. But in Christ, because he is in me, I can be more and more and more loving. If you don't think I'm loving now, you should have seen me a few years ago, okay? I promise it's getting better. You'll just have to trust me. And the same thing can be true for you. That in him, because he's in you, that this law has been fulfilled. Verse 9. It says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Now, don't raise your hand, but are there some people that you hate? Because it says, whoever says he's in the light, I say I'm in the light. I say that all my sins have been forgiven. I say that I'm going to heaven when I die. I say that I'm a Christian. I think I'm in. I'm all in. I've surrendered my life to the Lordship of Christ. And yet, there are still some people that when I see them, I think, Ugh, I hate them. All right? I know you're not supposed to say that, but I just did. But here's what, here's what Jesus says, or here's what John says. That in, in God's economy, relationships trump rules. Relationships trump rules. Because think about it. Most of us, if you've been around church for a while, most of us know somebody and they're very, very religious. They know their Bibles really, really well. They're in your disciple group and they answer all the questions. And when you have a question, you're like, I don't understand this. They step up and be like, well, <laughs> you thank God that I'm here because I am here with the answers. And they've memorized the Kings and the Old Testament. They know where all the books of the Bible are. They know, um, I mean, they just know all this stuff about the Bible. But the problem is, they don't really like anybody. And even worse, nobody really likes them. And the reason they're in your disciple group now is because they're in their ninth disciple group in the past nine months. And they've got a reason why that one didn't work and that one didn't work and that one didn't work. And they're probably in their fourth church this year and all of that kind of stuff. And I know, have you met these kind of people? Like, they know the book really well. They know the words in the Bible really, really well. The problem is they don't have any relationships where they love them and that person loves them back. 
And so what, what John would say here is that is a major, major problem because in God's economy, relationships trump rules. My grandma says about those kinds of folks, is, she says some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That sounds like a proverb that she wrote, but that's just what she says, all right? Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. You see this? What Jesus is saying is relationships matter. Relationships matter a lot. In fact, in fact, think about it this way. Do you know who I hate and, I, you know, who I have a real hard time loving? Here's, here's who I can't stand. I have a hard time loving people that mistreat my children. You know, you know, people that are unfair to them or people that are mean to them or people that I feel like mistreat them. Now, I'm not talking about discipline. You know, we kind of we discipline by committee where... You know, where I grew up, I grew up in an era where the guy at Walmart could give you a spanking. You know what I mean? Like, you could be, he'd be like, son, I'm going to have, and you like, who are you? You know, that kind of deal. That's where I grew up. So, if one of my friends, if my kid's at their house and he doesn't act right, they can do whatever they want. No problem. But I'm talking about people that are just, that mistreat or are mean to my kids, you know? Um, in, in fact, a couple weeks ago at a baseball game, I know all of my illustrations are about baseball right now, but whatever. So, a couple weeks ago at a baseball game, JP's running to third base. I can't remember if he stole third or his, hit a triple, whatever. He's running to third base, all right? And, and he gets there and he slides in and he's clearly safe and the umpire goes, safe! And then changes their mind. He goes, he's out! And I thought, what? I mean, he's clearly, it's not even close. And as soon as she changes her mind and calls him out, I thought, I hate her. I hate her. She's a liar. She can't see. The truth is not in her. God, if you want to come back right now and judge the quick and the dead, I would be for that. And I'm so, and I'm, I'm one of the coaches. And what I've learned, I am that, you know, the, you know those coaches that get crazy? Ah, that's me. I do. I do. I know it's not important. It just seems like the most important thing in my life for those couple hours. On a Saturday, I get so into it. And so what I want to do in my heart is I want to run out there and be like, are you blind or dumb? What is your problem? But the problem is, in my world now, I've done that a few times around town, and typically, right on the end of, what is your problem? I hear back, hi, Pastor Joby, I go to your church. So, <laughs> I can't do it. So, I'm just standing over kind of steaming. So, as soon as she, she's like, safe, never mind, he's out, and he's clearly safe, it's not even close. The coach of the other team, all right, the coach of the other team is standing by third base, and he saw the whole thing. And he walks out onto the field and says, hey, listen, I saw the whole thing, and, and the kid was safe. The kid was safe, so we need to leave him on third base because he was clearly safe. And in that moment, I thought, I love this man. <laughs> I mean, he is full of character and integrity. And you know, it's not about winning. It's really about the kids, and I like this man. And so that coach, who is really a great guy, that coach appeals the play on our behalf to the home plate umpire. The guy on the other team appeals to play to the home plate umpire and says, hey, home plate umpire, this kid was safe, let's just leave him here. And then the home plate umpire goes, nope, he's out. And I thought, all right, I hate her, I love him, and I hate him. That's what I think. You see, because you cannot simultaneously mistreat my kids and tell me that you love me. You can't divorce those two things. Me and you cannot be okay while you are mistreating my children. The other way is true, too. You want to honor me? You want to respect me? You want to be in my good graces, then here's what you do. Take care of my children. Because the way you love them is a reflection of how, if, whether you do love me or not. You know, last Friday night, we were, we were at the Potter's house for their unity night. And thank you so much for all the literally hundreds of 1122ers that showed up for that. If you weren't there, it was an amazing night of worship. Um, Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin and the Potter's house invited us to come over. And Ben and Gretchen and a lot of our worship team joined in with their worship team and, and led worship. And then I was going to preach. And... <clears throat> 
Um, Bishop Vaughn had about three minutes slated to do my introduction, all right? And he got up, he's the funniest man I've ever heard in my life, and he gets up to do my introduction, and he introduced me for 32 minutes. I know, right? But listen, it was amazing. It was. He talked about how smart I am, what a great leader I am. He talked about that this is just this move of God that is 1122. He talked about how good looking my wife is and how I didn't deserve her. And I was like, I know, I know, ain't God good, right? The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. High five. And he, and he just bragged on me. and said, I mean, just, just for 32 minutes, he talked about how great I am. And, and, and here's the thing. I've spoken at a lot of stuff. I think it's like my 10th sermon in the last... 12 days or something at different places. And, and here's the thing that you've got to understand. When people bring you in to speak somewhere and put you on stage, they say all this glowing stuff about you because they don't want their people to think they're an idiot because they brought in the JV guy. They want their people to think this guy coming up is amazing, okay? So now Bishop Vaughn goes on and on and on about, about how great I am. And I think he believes it, and we're friends, and, and it was true. But here's... <laughs> well, you know what I mean. <laughs> he talked about how humble I am and just... No, I'm just kidding. But here's when it got real. Afterwards, after we got finished with, with the worship service and everything, and I preached and, and all that, we went to Soul Food Bistro to just bless the Lord, oh my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. You know, went to Soul Food Bistro. And so um, we go there, and, and he's been blessing me all night. He blessed me with his words, and he even gave me this card now where I, when I go to Soul Food Bistro with my family, it's paid for by him. I can get whatever I want. Wing, it's already paid for. I've even got a, my own table at the Southside Soul Food Bistro. It's like the Christian Mafia. I didn't even know you got these kind of perks, but I do. Walk in, but that's my table. Get on my table, all right? And so that's what happened. But that night, it's late. It's 9.30, maybe later, and we're eating at the Soul Food Bistro at the pastor's table, and my kids are with me, and because Gretchen was leading worship, and my children are there. And JP and Reagan get word that at, at the Potter's house, they have a bowling alley at their church, okay? It's cool. We have Walmart. They have a bowling alley. And they have like a gym and stores and a place to get your hair cut, all kind of stuff. And in the bowling alley, uh, they have an arcade. And so JP's heard that there's this arcade in the bowling alley. And so I'm trying to, you know, hang out with, with Bishop Bob McLaughlin and chatting with him. And every three seconds, JP's on my shoulder going, Daddy, 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 can I go to the bowling alley? Can I go? Can I go? And I'm like, bud, I just need you to sit down and be quiet and, you know, just don't move. And then the bishop says, JP, come here for a second. And JP goes around goes eyeball to eyeball with Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin, who's been in ministry for 30-plus years. And, and Bishop gives him this incredible little talk. He says, look here, I appreciate you being here tonight. And I appreciate you loving and supporting your mom and dad. See, because your mom and dad are in ministry, and it's like being in God's army. And sometimes when you're in God's army and there's a war, you, you, know, you get sent out to go. It's almost like, you know, like you, you get sent out and, and there's going to be a price, JP, that you have to pay because your parents are out there, um, you know, serving God like this. And I just, way to go and way to support them. And, and here, and he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out cash, a lot, especially for a nine-year-old. Kind of gives me the, can I give him this? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And he gives JP cash and says, hey, JP, tell you what, since you've been so good tonight and you've supported your dad, why don't you go to the arcade on me and go play these games? And he hands him just this wad of money to send him. And then Reagan Capri, five-year-old little girl, my girl, she's standing right there, and she goes, what about me? <laughs> like her mama. And so he tells it out just straight to her. Here you go. What a money gives me that. And then they go, and they play. They go play video games. Now, what do you think I think about Bishop Paul McLaughlin? You know what? By the way he treated my children, in my mind, it validated all of those things that he said. Now, can you imagine if the opposite was true? Can you imagine if when JP came up and was like, Daddy, 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 can I, go to the, can I go to the bowling alley? If he would have come up out of his chair and reached over and 
smack my kid in the head and say, man, don't interrupt us. This is important stuff. And sit back down. Guess who's never going to the potter's house again? Yeah, in fact, I'm leaving Soul Food Bistro in handcuffs that night because you don't treat my kids that way. I think this is what John is saying. If you say you love the father, but you're hating your brothers, then there's a problem there. Those things cannot simultaneously happen. That your vertical relationship with Jesus impacts all of your horizontal relationships. So whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, look, you're in the darkness, you're not actually in the light. And whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And listen, it's not you, if you, there's something in you that wants to reverse the order here, okay? It's not if you love your brother, then you're loved by God. Wrong answer. That is a works-based righteousness. It's the opposite of 1 John. It's because God loves you and you love him back that he in you gives you the ability to love your brother. And if you can't, if you don't love your brother, then it could be a diagnosis that the love of God is not in you. Because think about this, okay? The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the first one is love. And it's not the root of the Spirit. It's not if you love, then you get the Spirit. It's if you get the Spirit rooted in you, then love is produced from the inside out. Not manufactured. You see, they manufacture a car. All of the parts are there. You put the parts in a certain order. Boom, you have a car. Love is produced like produce at the grocery store. Once there was no watermelon, now, ta-da, a watermelon has grown out of this seed that originally started. That when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, the seed of the Holy Spirit is planted within you. Every Christian has all of the Holy Spirit planted deep in them. And then, over time, not necessarily overnight, with the right watering and the right cultivation, the fruit of the Spirit begins to be produced. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so, if you are in Christ, then the reality is Christ is in you. So if you're a Christian, does Jesus live in you? Yes, yes, the Spirit of God lives in you. Then the next question is, does Jesus love the people you come eyeball to eyeball with? Yes. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave His only begotten Son, that you won't meet anybody this week that God doesn't love. And God demonstrated His love for you and them, that even when they were unlovable, Christ died for them on the cross. So how could the love of God be in you and he loves people near you and you not love the people near you? John would say those things don't go together. It would be like this. Like what if today during the service, at the end of the singing and then when the, the baptism video showed and afterwards, I just wasn't here. And everybody's sitting here waiting, waiting, waiting and in about three or four minutes, the door's in the back, uh, uh, they fling open and I come running in and I come up and put my Bible down and I go, oh gosh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm late, sorry I'm late. And somebody said, are you okay? What happened? I go, well, actually, um, I got hit by a train. Like, what? But yeah, I was on my way here um, this morning and, and my truck broke down on these train tracks and when I got out to fix my truck or to see what the problem was, I opened the door and I looked up and I heard, Meh, and a train smacked me between me and the truck and it hit me and it drug me to Palatka. And then I finally got out from under the train, and, and, then, and then I made my way here. You know what you do? You would look at me, and you would be like, um, you don't look like you've been hit by a train. You don't walk like you've been hit by a train. You don't talk like you've been hit by a train. From all the external evidence, it doesn't look anything like you have been impacted by the power of a train. I think you're a liar. In the same way, John says, 
How could you possibly have been run over by the power of the almighty, sovereign God that loves you in this infinite, limitless, indescribable kind of way that should absolutely transform your life? If it does, if you've been run over by that kind of love, then there's no possible way that you could walk the same and talk the same and be the same because the love of God is that transforming. Therefore, that's why That's why whoever loves his brother abides in the light, verse 11. And whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know what that means? Think about some of the dumb stuff you do when you hate. Think about the dumb stuff you say. Like when you get overtaken with rage and you you scream and yell and flex. Or the Bible says careless words stab like a sword. Sometimes you stab some of the people that you love the most, that you're closest to, because you're just in this rage of hate. And you stumble around in the darkness, and and you're battered and you're bruised because of hate. And God is saying, no, it should not be so among you. And so according to Jesus, and according to 1 John... What they're going to say is that, is that your me- the measure of your Christianity is not simply about right belief, but your behavior is either going to validate or betray what you say you believe. You see, in fact, you know what Jesus said when a, a, a Pharisee came up to him and said, okay, Jesus, what's the most important thing? What does this all boil down to? Jesus made it very, very simple. He said, all right, here, here's what it is. You love God and you love people. That's it. Now, that order is important, okay? You can't get that order out of order, or you'll misunderstand the whole thing. That first and foremost, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. That that vertical relationship is so important. But that vertical relationship cannot be isolated. You can't just have this moment with you and Jesus and it not impact every other relationship that you have. That you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, see... I was raised to believe that if you want to be a Christian, that you just had to believe the right things. Now, the problem with that is, is the book of James says that even the demons believe the right things, but none of them love God and love each other. They just, they just have the correct doctrine. So, here's what happened. When Christianity first came on the scene a couple thousand years ago, the first generation of believers, the majority of them, the reason that they believed is because, not, of, not, of, not because they believed, but because there was a dead man that claimed to be God, and he came out of the grave. That Jesus Christ died on a cross, and three days later, he's fishing with Peter and eating fish sandwiches and that kind of stuff. And that made people go, whew, he must be who he says he is. But then the generations that followed the original apostles, part of the reason that Christianity took off all over the Roman world is this, is because the early Christians did what Jesus told them to do. That they loved one another just as Christ had loved them. And so... In, in, in early, in Rome, a couple thousand years ago, when Roman citizens who had no category for the sanctity of life, when they were abandoning babies because they were female and they didn't want another girl baby, or they were abandoning little boys because they weren't perfect or didn't have the right hair color or whatever, guess who the only group was that came in to take care of those babies? It was Christians. Why? Because Jesus said... Just as God has loved you, so you must love one another. And so they saw the least of these, and they went out and they loved them. Or when the plagues began to hit um, the Roman Empire, and everybody else is running away from the cities to save themselves, there's one group of people that are running to the cities to take care of the sick people. It was the Christians. 
And it had such an impact on the world that that was how Christianity really began to take root because the Christians actually did what Jesus said to do was to love one another. And the whole world knew that they were his followers by their love for one another. And then at about 325 AD, you've heard this in your freshman history class, Christianity goes from a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. And Christianity becomes the legalized religion of the Holy Roman Empire. And in that moment, what began to happen is, is preachers and churches and bishops, they began to get all the power. And not only that, is um, when people would begin to translate the Bible there, they began to quit using the word ecclesia for church, which just means a movement. That's why 1122 is a movement for all people. And they began to use the word kirche, which is an old German word that means the Lord's house. And so this thing that we call, that we call the Jesus movement, it went from a movement to a place that you go. Not only that, there began to be theological controversies. And they were actually the same controversies that John is having here. There were a group of people that believed that Jesus was not born divine, but he was appointed divinity at his, at his baptism. And so this big question comes up, was Jesus begotten divinity or bestowed divinity? It's this huge theological argument. I know you, you probably deal with it all the time at your work too. But so... So they had this thing called the Council of Nicaea. Maybe you've heard of it. The Council of Nicaea. And it was primarily to answer that one question. Is Jesus begotten of God? Has he always been God? Or did he just kind of become the Christ at his baptism? And out of that, they, they developed what's called as the Nicene Creed. In 325, they come out with the Nicene Creed. And it's a doctrinal statement to draw a line in the sand to figure out who believes the right things about God and, and who the heretics are that don't believe the right things about God. And maybe you know the Nicene Creed. Because, you know, if you grew up Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopalian or something pretty traditional, maybe you said it over and over and over and over. And let me just say this, and I agree wholeheartedly with everything in the Nicene Creed. Here's what it says. It says, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation, and he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and he was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and on the third day he rose again. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son. He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And I agree with everything in there theologically. Here's one major, major problem. Not one time in the Nicene Creed does it say love God or love people. You see the problem? And so... What begins to happen is people think, I'm with God as long as I think the right things in my head. As opposed to, he's in my heart, the love of God is in me, and the love of God in me begins to change and transform how I love the people around me. You see, it's fundamentally different. And so, back to 1 John. Then John, now he breaks into song. Anytime, it, like the Bible becomes a musical, anytime it's got these little um, indentions in your scripture, it means it's like a poem or a song. And so... 
It's like John sings them the song. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for, the, for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, second verse is a lot like the first. Here we go. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let me just sum it all up here. Here's what he's doing. You notice he's talking about brothers and fathers and children. Why? Because being a Christian means that you're part of the family. And what John is saying here is you want evidence as to, as to does the love of God live in you? You cannot simultaneously mistreat your brothers and sisters in the family and think that you and God are just totally okay. You see, because the reality is a lot of us think, no, 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 no. I mean, listen, my relationship with them has no impact on my relationship with God. Well, actually, God would say you cannot divorce those two things. That if the love of God is in you, it changes the way you treat everybody else. And here's what I know. Here's what I know. As many people as I'm going to talk to today, there are some of you, and you are in a relational mess. I mean a relational nightmare. Maybe it's with your spouse, and you fought the whole way here. I mean, you, you can't even stand it. You're a little mad you have to sit right next to each other right now. You know what I'm saying? And you lied when you came in. And people are like, oh, how y'all doing? You're like, oh, we're so good. We're just so good. And you're thinking, you liar. You know what I mean? I almost ran over you in the driveway on the way here. I hate you right now. This is true. This is true. Some of you are in the middle of a messy divorce, and, and you can't even consider anything but hate when you think about your ex. Or some of you, some of you are like, dude, why is this guy going to talk about relationships? He works at church. I'm sure everybody he works with is just awesome. They probably all just hold hands and skip around the church singing kumbaya all week. But if he had my boss... You know, you know how evil my boss is? You know how mean my boss is? You know, how, you know how rude my boss is to me? And when you think about your boss, you just think, mm, I hate that guy. Or maybe it's an old roommate or an old friend or a coworker who's been running their mouth about you. But I just know this. There's a lot of people in this room right now, and there are some relational messes. And right now, you're thinking, I don't even know how I could possibly love that person. Here's how. If you're a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, it's not about just be nicer. It's the love of Christ in you. The love, the growing love for the Father in you should begin to spill out and love those near you. The point is this. The love of Jesus in you changes the way you love the one beside you. The love of Jesus in you changes the way you love the one beside you. And how are you to love the one beside you? Like Jesus loved you. Like Jesus loved you. See, Paul says it this way. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, here's what Paul says. Paul says, the only thing that counts, now let's just stop. Think about how heavy the sentence is going to be. If the Apostle Paul were to walk out on stage right now, all right, let's just say if I said, all right, hey, I got a special guest all the way from the first century, former terrorist, converted to church planter, uh, Saul of Tarsus, into the Apostle Paul. Please welcome the Apostle Paul. And, and, the, and the roof split open, and Apostle Paul just got beamed down from heaven. Boom, and he's right here. And he's like, greetings, saints of 1122. He says, I have a very short message for you. The only thing that counts. Now, you, wouldn't you think, oh, this is going to be big? And here's what he says in Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He's saying everything that John is saying in 1 John. The only thing that counts is faith. It's faith. In other words, the first and most important thing is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That, that's what matters. That's what's foundational. And then, here's how you know if you've got real faith, because it expresses itself or manifests itself in the way you treat the people beside you. 
So you can, you can no longer be thinking like, you know what, I'm just going to go to church and have this little warm, fuzzy moment between me and Jesus, and I'm going to sing some songs and raise my hands and do that kind of thing. But it's not going to impact any of the people around me. Paul and John and Jesus would say, wrong answer, that's not how it works. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love for one another. Martin Luther, who I know you read all the time, but just as a reminder, Martin Luther talked about the active and passive righteousness of God. The active and passive righteousness. And this is what Paul is talking about here when he says the only thing that counts is faith. That's called passive righteousness. That means there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. That when you became a Christian, you didn't go seeking after God because he wasn't lost, okay? But he came after you. That you were dead in your transgressions and he made you alive. You're the passive agent. That's passive righteousness. And not only that, that's where your assurance is. Because if you didn't do anything to earn it, you don't have to do anything to keep it. But there's also active righteousness. You were not saved by good works, but you were saved for good works. And your vertical relationship with God impacts you in such a way that it changes all of your horizontal relationships. And now you do good works, not because God needs them, but because your neighbor does. And so the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, is faith expressing itself through love. You want to know how big a deal this is? Here's what Jesus says about it in Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Here's what Jesus says. Again, Jesus says, So, if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So in other words, at the end of this service, in just a few minutes, when we, when we give you a time to respond, you know how every week we say, all right, now we're going to respond, and response is, is, is our worship to God. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done, and you can sing, you can come to the altar and pray, you can bring your tithes and offerings to the giving boxes or give electronically, and it's all a response or an offering to God. Jesus says, if you're about to do that, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, here, here's what you do. Verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother. Now, some of you are like, no, Jesus, I, I want to sing you a song. I mean, let's just do oceans again, right? And I'm going to close my eyes and raise my hands because I know you hear it better when I close my eyes. You know, I love that. And I just want to sing you a song, Jesus. Or some of you maybe came in here and you're like, oh, I can't wait for the offering time. I got this big fat wad of cash in my pocket. I could hardly get in the door. I was dragging it all in. And I can't wait to that end time where I can come and God just give you all this money that, that I'm sacrificially, cheerfully giving to you. And Jesus would say, okay, I appreciate your song, I appreciate your offering, but listen, I'm fine. I don't need your song. All right, I got people singing to me all the time up here. And I don't need your money. If I wanted your money, I could just squish you and take all your money. So you were not really giving me anything, it's really mine. So we'll talk about that later. So here's what I want you to do. Relationships are more important than any of that stuff. Me and you are fine, and I established that at the cross. That I was made sin for you, who was full of sin. And then when you surrendered to me, we switched places. And so you have the righteousness. Me and you are fine. Whether you sing me songs or not, we're good to go. But if you've got problems horizontally, you need to get that right. You need to get that right. So that literally means at the end of this service that what you might need to do is instead of coming down here to the altar, you might need to go back there and, and talk to somebody that's at this church that, that you know they have something against you or that you have something against them. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and first go be reconciled to your brother. Now, here's what's important. You can be right or you can be reconciled. Those are your options. Being right has nothing to do with being a Christian. 
This is fundamental to your understanding of your relationships with everybody if you call yourself a Christian. Being right has nothing to do with being a Christian. Because listen, when Jesus came to this earth, he could have chosen to be right. He could have stepped out on this earth and went, I'm perfect and you're a sinner. Your sin is not my problem. I didn't do it. But what does he do? He doesn't decide to be right. He decides to go to the cross to reconcile us to the Father. And then if you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, that same reconciling Jesus now abides inside of you. And then in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 says that because we have been reconciled unto the Father, that God makes us ambassadors on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to one another, that we we should have the ministry of reconciliation. Because I know what some of you are thinking. You've got some name in your head right now, and you're like, I'm not talking to that joker because he doesn't deserve it. So how in the world can I love him? The only way I know to tell you is because of Christ's love for you. Because he died for you, and he demonstrated his love for you when you didn't deserve it. When we deserved it. When we deserved hell, and we deserved death, and we deserved punishment, we got love, and we got grace, and we got mercy. And if you've encountered the unsearchable, indescribable love of God, then it has to change the way that we treat one another. And so Jesus says, so the first thing you do is go be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So then pick up that big wad of money, and if it doesn't fit all in the offering box, we'll open it and let you dump it in. No problem. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to be very practical. I want you to get out your notes, open up to the back. I've got three questions here. Because it will do you no good to come in here and have this little fuzzy moment with Jesus and then walk out of here and not do anything about it. You'll miss the whole point. You'll miss the whole point. So I just want you to ask yourselves these three questions. The first one, with whom do I need to be reconciled? With whom do I need to be reconciled? And here's what I really want you to do. I want you to get your phone. And I, want, I want you to open up your contact list because my guess is they're actually in your contact list. I want you to open up your contact, get your smartphone and open it up. And if you're like, I don't have a smartphone, I have a flip phone. Okay, flip it open, tear it in half, and go get a smartphone. It's 2015. Seriously. <laughs> Download the Bible. All right, so I want you to scroll to that person. And just get their name there. That's it. Just get their name there. All right? And I'll identify. And then the second one is, what's your next move? Now, here's the thing. I want to tell you what your next move ought to be. That's just kind of how I'm wired. But I trust that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you and tell you exactly what you need to do. For some of you, you think, oh, that's really complicated. Man, I get it. This is one sermon for one hour, and it's probably taken years for you to get into the place where you are with this person. So I'm just believing that you are going to listen to the, to the move of the Holy Spirit in your life and just do whatever he tells you to do. But the suggestion I would make is that the next call, the next move for you may be just to, to hit sin on that name and to call him. And to begin the ministry of reconciliation. And look, you can blame it on me. You'll be like, hey, man, my pastor said that uh, I'm supposed to call you and just talk about this stuff. And the thing is that you would step out the way Jesus stepped out for you. And then the last one is by when? By when? And again, you determine that. Now, a suggestion I would make is before church next Sunday. That before next Sunday, you come back in here to, you know, make your offering of attendance or worship or whatever that you, by the power of God, would reach out in the ministry of reconciliation and that you would love your brother and sister because, not because they deserve it, but because Jesus first loved you. And Jesus said, I give this new command to you, a new command, that you would love one another just as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. And then, just for a second, what if? What if the rest of what Jesus said in this new commandment, what if it actually happened? 
And what if the whole world knew that we were his disciples by the way we love one another? Now, for many of you, for many of you, man, there's all kind of emotion and, and it's still fresh wound. Or, or maybe you finally, you know, you were like, ah, I've worked so hard to get this stuff out of my mind. Why do you want to bring it back up? Look, I can't bring up anything. It may be the Holy Spirit just churning some stuff in you. And maybe your next move is as we close here, maybe you need to come down to the altar and kneel down and say, Dear God, i got to have a miracle. God, i had to have some of that resurrection power of Jesus that, that I know is in here, and I need you to stir around. I need the fruit of the Spirit of love to maybe begin producing itself out here on the branches. Because right now, I don't feel like I love this person or could even love this person. God, I need you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I need you to remind me of the, of the vast expanse of sin that I have been forgiven of so that when I look eyeball to eyeball with this person that I can forgive because I have been forgiven so much. Maybe that's your next move. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you loved us so much that you did not count our transgressions against us, but you emptied yourself you dressed yourself as a servant. You loved us, not just in word, but in deed. And on that cross, when you said, it is finished, all of our sin has been wiped away. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in our lives. God, I pray that maybe even in this service right now, before anybody sings a word, God, that there would be men and women, students, that would cross over aisles here and go and be reconciled first and then come and make their offering to you. God, I pray that you would move in a mighty way. And God, I pray that maybe, just maybe, because of our love for one another, because of our grace and mercy that was demonstrated by you, that comes from you, from the inside of us, that maybe people all over the city and families all over the place represented here, that they would see the way we love one another and know that we are your disciples. So we pray it in Jesus' name.